This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. North America, Europe, the Commonwealth, the whole of the Middle East. The world is listening. 2020, an outstanding diplomatic summer for Israel. Normalization with the United Arab Emirates, the historic El Al flight allowed through Saudi airspace, starring President Trump's advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner. We are about to board a historic flight, the first commercial flight in history between Israel to a Gulf Arab country. While this is a historic flight, we hope that this will start an even more historic journey for the Middle East and beyond. I prayed yesterday at the wall that Muslims and Arabs from throughout the world will be watching this flight, recognizing that we are all children of God and that the future does not have to be predetermined by the past. This is a very hopeful time and I believe that so much peace and prosperity is possible in this region and throughout the world. Bahrain set to follow, forcing a reset of opposing forces, Turkey, Iran and the European Union. What are their motives to be against it exactly? Times they are changing. Serbia commits to a Jerusalem embassy and Kosovo, a majority Muslim nation, establishing diplomatic ties with the Jewish state. And today, we focus on post-war, post-communist, now European Union member, Hungary. They're confronting their own 20th century history to make their 21st century better, to be constructive members of the European Union, to reach out to Israel and use their experiences to teach and influence. Ambassador Ferenc Kumin says two generations along, there's now a healthy distance from the horrors of the Hungarian Holocaust. Is there? What can a modernized, globalized Hungary with open borders show us? And how can they learn from the past? We feel a moral drive to strengthen our ties to Israel and the Jewish community, says His Excellency. And when you have that moral drive, it makes it easier. You don't hesitate. And to do that, the past must be acknowledged. The Holocaust in Hungary was swift and terrible, starting 19th March 1944, the invading Nazis, led by SS officer Adolf Eichmann, who arrived in Budapest to supervise the deportation of the country's Jews to Auschwitz. And between the 15th of May and the 9th of July 1944, over 434,000 Jews were deported by train, mostly to Auschwitz, where they were gassed on arrival. 91-year-old Ava Schloss, stepsister of Anne Frank, is a living eyewitness to the horror of this mechanised carnage. This happened. She saw it happen as it unfolded over the short summer weeks. And I interviewed her in the episode directly after this. My mother and me were uh, chosen then to work in Canada. I don't know if you've heard that. That was a nickname, Canada being good and plenty and so on, um, where all the things which the transport took because we were naked. We had to leave everything and it was all taken to this place called Canada and we had to sort out the things and it was taken all back to Germany. And I saw those Hungarian Jews coming because Canada was next to the train where those people arrived. And there was very few selections and most of those Hungarian Jews, I saw that, 
went straight to be guest. So, and I felt, feel sometimes guilty because of those people were killed and were collected. Then May, June, I had a better job. But of course, somebody else would have done it if I wouldn't have done it. And though I was born in 60s England, this rings in my ears, echoes in my family. My grandma and grandpa escaped Vienna, then part of Austria-Hungary. Hungarians and Israelis reach out to each other now. Within the EU, Hungary plays an important role as a supporter of Israel's regional stability and as a strategic partner. But as Ambassador Kumin is first to declare, a new cooperation wouldn't be possible without confronting the past. Parents didn't tell to their children. It was something... A, a little a strange mixture of the memory of the Holocaust, the fear that was still around in the families, and the communists who just wanted to, to avoid this topic. Mm-hmm. Holocaust itself wasn't discussed even in the schools. When, when I was an elementary school student, probably we had something in the, in the history book, but of course we, the, 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 the entire curriculum avoided to really discuss the whole thing. I, I had to learn the true facts of the Hungarian Holocaust and what role we played in it as Hungarian authorities, Hungarian government, how it was, generally speaking, in my adulthood. It, it, was, it was a very, very strange realization of how I missed a very important aspect of our history. So that's why it's, it's, it's now super important for us to put it correctly in the curriculum. This episode is all the more remarkable as I simply wouldn't be able to do the same with Poland, another EU nation who refused to confront their involvement in the Holocaust. In fact, they've outlawed anyone from accusing Poland of complicity. It was the Germans and don't say otherwise, they claim. In episode 27, Baroness Ruth Dietsch, herself the daughter of Polish Holocaust survivors, spoke in anger and consternation that Poland were even allowed to join the European project without adequate apology or compensation to the Jews they murdered. Poland really should never have been admitted to the European Union. Just before Poland was admitted, they promised to pay restitution. At the last minute, they withdrew that on the ground they weren't well off enough, which is really ridiculous. Not only are you right about Holocaust denial of any part they may have played, but just today I was reading that Poland plans to make it a criminal offence to seek restitution or to offer restitution. Now, nobody like me is seeking full restitution of the property that was theirs in Poland. But some acknowledgement, a token, even a Solperstein, as the Germans have done. In episode 39, Jason Greenblatt, co-author of Donald Trump's Peace to Prosperity Plan, himself the first-generation American, son of Hungarian immigrants, told me that he seeks Hungary to influence Europe for the better. And that's where we start this interview with Hungary's ambassador to the UK from the embassy in London, Ferenc Kumin. I have a question, by the way, from Jason Greenblatt, but he was my last guest on the show. This is the first face-to-face interview I've done since lockdown, which was how I used to do things. (laughs) Ambassador Kumin, thank you very much for your hospitality, for welcoming me here to the Hungarian embassy in London. Thank you for your interest. This has been a moment of good relations, I think it's fair to say, between Mr. Orban and Mr. Netanyahu. Unprecedented, actually, I think, in the history of the State of Israel. Yes, if you just take the the fact that that the first official visit of an Israeli prime minister could only take place 
uh, in 2017. That just gives you an idea about how difficult history we have behind us where, with the state of Israel and Hungary. And of course, it had to do something with our, with our dark decades under communist regime where we had orders from Moscow, for instance, to break up our diplomatic ties with Israel after the Six-Day War. And so we had to resume these ties right after the change of regime, and we were among the first uh, countries in the region who did so. Uh, and, and from that moment on, gradually, slowly, with a good sense of direction, we could get to where we are now. It's, it's very easy to say because this is a fact that the best possible relationship between the two countries. And we have a lot, of course, to share and we have a lot to care about. Just take the, the 300,000 uh, Israeli nationals who have Hungarian origins. They, they speak Hungarian. They have Hungarian, very strong Hungarian identities. And of course, it's, it's, it's very difficult with our history, keeping in mind what, what happened to, to our Jewish compatriots uh, at the end of the war, the Hungarian Holocaust itself, why, why many people felt that they have to, uh, had to leave the country. So it's a very, very complicated relationship. But what we see now, two generations after the war, my generation, there's a, there's a healthy distance and now it's the right time, it's the right moment to, to rebuild confidence and to realize that we have way more in common than what uh, makes us apart or tears us apart. And, and this understanding now generates, I guess, a perfect foundation to work with not just Israel, but, but Jewish organizations around the world to see how we can cooperate. And, and for us diplomats, and this is part of our official diplomacy, to support Israel. And, and with that, we occupy a very unique position, if you like, in, in, in European foreign policy making. And sometimes we are the only ones who, who oppose uh, certain statements, certain, certain uh, uh, forms of, of willingness to go against Israel in the international arena. And, and very luckily, uh, Israel reflects to it, of course. Uh, it, uh, it justifies our, our position. And, and this, this is now a very important driving force for us to, to go forward uh, with, with our friendship. Ambassador, this is a question from Jason Greenblatt, co-architect of the Peace to Prosperity Plan, a new attempt to create a peaceful solution for the Palestinian and Israeli people. He is of Hungarian descent on both his mother really? and his father's side. And in a very touching interview, he said that if his grandparents could see the uh, projection of what he had achieved in his first generation in the United States, they would have scarcely believed him. He is very supportive of the Hungarian foreign minister's meeting with Jared Kushner, his co-architect. And he asks this question from his Hungarian background. Because of your membership of the European Union, and you talk about your sometimes lone position in the European Union when it comes to Israel. What influence can you exact upon your European partners to provide a more just peace as scribed by Messrs. Kushner, Friedman and Greenblatt and President Trump? You know, a uh, voice of a, of a member state, even if it's just one member state, in the European Union structure matters a lot. 
So if there's a single voice, and sometimes we're not alone, luckily. So there's a, there's a group of countries, even though still in minority, but, but together with us at certain points of decision-making. I, I guess that if this voice is made heard and our, our arguments are put onto the table, and these are very rational arguments when we say that we should give a chance first to the parties to come together and deal with each other and not uh, before anything happens, just based on our prejudices and based on, on what we, what we uh, assume uh, about a, a newly formed government in Israel, come up with statements that are one-sided, unbalanced, and, and in most of the cases politically motivated. Uh, this is not the way we try to approach any country's domestic affairs. And here uh, the, same, the same rationale has to be in place. First, the decision that was, that was made by the Israeli people about their government should should be uh, should be respected by all means. That's that's the bottom uh, line for for all of our approaches. We have learned what it's like to to be criticized for the decision, the democratically made decisions uh, of of uh, of our own people. Uh, we don't like it. We try to reject it uh, all the time, and, and we would like to exercise the same method so to to give the chance to the countries. To their, to their governments, to their partners, to talk to each other. So here, here's the hope. And, and we believe that, that in the Middle East peace process, the U.S. has to play uh, a certain role. It's inevitable uh, because there must be a strong, powerful uh, third party uh, that, that can somehow uh, make the whole process uh, roll and, and, and go further. And we see there's a serious attempt now. And if we, if we just give a little chance to these parties to talk to each other and to find uh, a way with the help of the U.S. Uh, this should result in, in, a, in a positive outcome. But what we definitely shouldn't do as European Union, as, as, as United Nations, as any international organization, we shouldn't say in advance that it's, that it's not possible or, or that, that, we, that we shouldn't even start a conversation uh, on, on this track. Because if we do so, we will find ourselves again in this in this in this never-ending uh, story of, of of not being able to, to to find a solution, and we know that it's not good for Israel, it's not good for the Middle East, and it's not good for us, Europe, and the entire global security, because we we for us Israel and for us by us I mean Europe as a whole. Israel is a very important partner, a very important partner in trade, in technology exchange, in in all sorts of of connections. Uh, we need a stable partner in the Middle East, surrounded by instability, uh, and, and, and we have to respect this stability that is represented uh, in Israel these days. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West. Uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in, in Israel. Um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke 
revolution where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be canceled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists. And often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that, to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. To effect foreign policy from inside the European Union when Hungary is so often out of step with its European partners is something that Britain dealt with in a dramatic fashion with the shock vote, I think it's fair to say, of Brexit as a European partner and a committed one, but with so many fault lines, I think it's fair to say, between Hungary and European partners, how do you make a difference inside the European Union? Well, we would like to to present our perspective for the future of Europe. That is these days different from maybe the mainstream of our European partners. Because what we see is, um, is a future where we don't really want to go for a further deepening uh, of the European structure as a whole. We don't want to give up more policies, you know, fractions of our sovereignty, for Brussels. It's possible, of course, to fine-tune the policies and to reform for a a better working construction, but the general direction shouldn't be this, because we believe that we are at the point where where, where a certain balance is around between Brussels and the nation-states, and we should keep this balance. And if we want a stronger union, what we want, uh, along with our partners, along with every single member state, then the direction should be the enlargement. We see we see certain potential for enlargement in our neighborhood. Uh, there's a whole bunch of countries, the Western Balkans, that are waiting for, for their European perspective. Uh, and we do believe that they are ready. We should, we should be more open for their integration ambitions. And by having them, and especially after Brexit, when, when the number of member states went down in the first time of our history as European Union, we should, we should find ways to, to somehow go against this, trend, this tendency and to find new member states. And these are the ones who are eager to join. And still we don't give them the perspective that, that, that they need something like a date, something mm-hmm. like conditions, well-set conditions, which they, if they met, uh, they, could, they could join us. And, and uh, you know, this is, this is our way of approaching the entire European Union. This makes us, I do believe, this makes us very European. Sometimes it's questioned by the mainstream media. This makes us, uh, I guess, a strong supporter of the European integration as a general idea. We are big supporters of this, but not by giving up more, more policies uh, towards Brussels, because... The COVID-19 pandemic was just a very spectacular illustration of what role nation states can play when, when there is an emergency, when there is, a, when there is a, a situation where quick action is required. And the, 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 the Brussels bureaucracy was really not there 
to be able to, to step in and, and do the writing immediately, which is, I wouldn't say it's okay, but, but by, by having the nation states uh, with their capacities in place just gives us the security uh, of our people when a, when a situation such as this was comes around, then we are able to, to act to the right direction. Ambassador, I hear the words nation states uh, repeated in your question, and in a sense, with a British hat on here, that sounds like a contradiction in terms to the European project. So on one hand, you're reaching out to neighbouring nations who are looking for the European perspective, as you called it. On the other hand, Britain declared itself independent, a nation-state once more, to affect its own policy. How does Hungary tread that line between being a productive member of the European Union and being a nation-state? There, there are certain policies of the European Union. I would say the majority of the policies, the achievements that are already around, which, which we, we, we consider as great achievements and which should stay with us. Hungary is an open economy. It's an open country. Open borders are uh, the absolute necessary conditions for, for our economies to strive. And it's indeed, it, it indeed could strive in the past quite, quite nicely. We could, we could score a 5% GDP growth, which is unprecedented uh, in our recent history, just resulted in a lot of increase of, of the living standards of, of Hungarians, which is, of course, reflected in, uh, in, in political support of the currently ruling government. So open borders, uh, the Schengen system, uh, free trade uh, are all the things, free flow of people, uh, that, uh, that are very, very important for, for our people, for, for our economy. Uh, but what we don't need is further concentration of power uh, in Brussels that could s- somehow block us in decision-making in certain fields where we do need quick decisions. Sometimes we need special tailor-made decisions for our own country. And we want to keep this potential there's a certain debate about us joining the eurozone. We still have our own national currency. And the financial crisis showed us that it still has its benefits to have your own national currency. And we still we don't have a, a deadline to join the eurozone at this point. So, again, it's not to say that we don't want to do that ever. But first, we need a healthy eurozone. First, we need a well-functioning monetary union as well. Uh, and, and this is true for the entire integration. So if, if an integration starts to go to the wrong direction, when, when, when Brussels tries to, to control those uh, aspects of our lives as well that shouldn't be controlled from a remote capital, then it's a, it's a wrong direction. We should, we should stop and think at least about, about that direction. So that's, where we, that's, where, that's, that's, that's why we say that, that further deepening of the integration is, is something that, 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 that we should reconsider at least. Can we talk about the Jewish community uh, in Hungary? It was a huge community through the Holocaust, a terrible tragedy a European Holocaust. Many of the Jews of Hungarian descent now live in Israel, the United States, Canada, the UK, France, uh, Belgium, and other countries around the world, South Africa, Australia. I'm not going to name all the countries, but, but many countries. What is the state of the Jewish community now in Hungary? How do they feel as citizens in a modern Hungary post-war, post-Nazism, post-communism? 
very quick word on, on history, because to answer your question, you need to understand the, the very tragic nature of the Hungarian Holocaust. It's been a very quick procedure by the end of the war. After the German occupation of Hungary in 44, it started uh, in early April. And it was very tragically effective on the countryside, mostly where the Orthodox Jewry lived in Hungary. So as a result of the Hungarian Holocaust, it only, only lasts for, for, for uh, I, I hope I, I say it correctly, for three months, but in a very active fashion, very tragic. Uh, the Orthodox Jewry almost entirely disappeared from the country. Uh, whereas in Budapest, there were more ways to, to save uh, the Budapest Jewry. There were more ways to, to, to hide them for, for those uh, Hungarians who, who tried to help, for diplomats who were involved, like Raoul Wallenberg, who were involved in saving Jewish lives. So what eventually was an outcome of this very tragic couple of months, that Hungarian Jewry mostly concentrated to, to Budapest, the capital city, and those countryside centers of the Jewish life, like the Northeast, which was very important, mostly for the Orthodox, completely disappeared. And uh, the way of life completely changed in those, those regions of Hungary. What is a, a wonderful development from this, from this very tragic setting that now, after two generations, which is, I, I repeat, I guess it's a healthy distance now from, from what happened in the war. Those Orthodox Jews who mostly ended up, as you rightly pointed out, in North America and the U.S. mostly, they started to return, not to live, just for the anniversaries of the wonder rabbis, the rabbis, and what they call the Yurtzeit in Yiddish, which is very important for the Orthodox life. And sometimes we have tens of thousands of, of pilgrims who just appear in the right place in the right time. You know, this, is, this is a wonderful development for us because now we see that there's confidence in these people who would, you know, their grandfathers would never return, would, would never even suggest to their, to, their, to their family members to return to those places where it happened to them. But that's a very important aspect of the Jewish tradition and heritage, the cemeteries, the cemetery stayed. Even if no one remained in certain villages, the cemetery stayed there. And in the cemeteries, the tombs of the wonder rabbis, very important for, point for the, for the Orthodox Jewish to return, to be there. Just as important as, this is, this is shocking, this was shocking learning for me, but just as important as to, as to go to Israeli pilgrimage sites, to, to go to small Hungarian villages, and they do that, and they, and they, they would, they would, you know, they wouldn't travel anywhere else, but, but there, they wanted to, and they, they want their, their kid to be there. It's a wonderful development. So we don't have them, but we started to feel them again. We started to, to feel the influence of this once flourishing community. Well, in, in, in Budapest, of course, we, we've already had this community, but still, it was something during the communist era, the decades uh, under, under communist system when Hungary belonged to the outer empire of the Soviet Union. It was just a topic that no one talked about. If you're a Jew, if you have any identity, identity was something that, that the communists wanted to abolish. They, they didn't want to talk about that. So what, what Jewish people themselves talk about is a lost generation. I have a very close friend who learned in his early 40s that he, he was Jewish. Because parents didn't tell to their children. It was something, a, a little a strange mixture of the memory of the Holocaust, the fear that was still around in the families, and the communists who just wanted to, to avoid this topic. Mm -hmm. Holocaust itself wasn't discussed even in the schools. When, when I was an elementary school student, uh, 
probably we had something in the in the history book, but of course, we the the the, the entire curriculum avoided to really discuss the whole thing. I I had to learn the the, the true facts of the Hungarian Holocaust and what role we played in it as Hungarian authorities, Hungarian government, how it was, generally speaking, in my adulthood. It, it, was, it was a very, very strange realization of how I missed a very important aspect of our history. So that's why it's, it's, it's now super important for us to put it correctly in the curriculum. It's been a big debate. Now I, I do hope that the way it is discussed in our schools is accurate, it's, it's much better than in the past. There's always room for improvement. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. But, but Israel was also involved in the development of the new curriculum. We've spent the last, I would say, more than 10 years with constant talks to Israeli partners as well, people from Yad Vashem and, and all, all those, those relevant parties uh, who could have a say in that. Uh, and now, now, you know, Hungarian students leave the school with, with, a, with a knowledge that puts the whole story to a right register in their heads. Ambassador, very bold words, and uh, thank you for saying them. The rise of Hungarian nationalism in the 2020s has seen the rehabilitation of Hungary's regent and de facto leader during World War II, Miklos Holti. I asked Jonathan Friedland, author of The Escape Artist, the story of two young Jewish inmates of Auschwitz, Rudolf Werber and Alfred Wetzler, about Israel's improving relationship with Hungary, despite the dark shadow of the Hungarian Holocaust in 1944. The Hungarian lives were saved by Miklos Holti, who is back with a vengeance in Hungary. And Hungary is a great supporter of Israel within the European Union, within that group of three Slavic countries that Israel joins in with. Poland has been sort of kicked out in disgrace temporarily. It is, it's a very, very difficult discussion. Mm. And it's a Hungarian discussion I've had with the ambassador here, mm. with Eva Schloss. Mm. Um, what do we do with Hungary? Yeah. So one thing I've discovered about talking about this book is I, I've become very, very pedantic about things. And so about even just the way words are used. Because I'm reluctant to give him the credit of saying he spared those lives because mm. it was so self-serving. It was an act of self-preservation by him that he had, he was the regent of, uh, of Hungary, the de facto ruler. And he had allowed, turned a blind eye to, the deportation of 437,000 Jews, more than that actually, um, from the Hungarian provinces. Uh, so, I, so Horty had no problem with handing the Jews of Hungary over to the Nazi occupiers in that spring of 1944. A 56-day killing spree, yes. actually, that was the fastest, you know this, it yes. was the fastest period of Holocaust slaughter in the entire period. Horty doesn't bat an eyelid, you know, this is happening all around the country. Then partly through their extraordinary escape, which we might talk about, Verba and Wetzler have got the word out through this report, 32-page document, that makes its way hand-to-hand, crossing borders, smuggled in the dead of night secretly. It gets out to different places and ultimately reaches Winston Churchill in London, Franklin Roosevelt in Washington, the Pope in Rome. And it makes it into the press, the world's press. It's only then when the world's press now know about Auschwitz and what's happening there, thanks to 
Rudolf Verber and Fred Wetzel's escape, that the Pope, who's known about Auschwitz for longer than that, and Roosevelt, ditto, then write to Admiral Horty, Miklos Horty, and say, if you can continue with these deportations of Jews and, unspoken, if you're on the losing side of the war, anyone involved, including you, will be held to account. At that point, Horty and the ruling circle in Hungary panic and think we're going to be going to a war crimes trial. So let's, he then you know, pulls the lever and demands at that moment, halt the deportations, halt the deportations. It happens very quickly. Papal telegram, privately, doesn't Pope doesn't make it public. Roosevelt say, you've got to stop these deportations. And Horty does that on July the 5th, I think, in... Um, uh, 1944. 1944. And that moment, uh, 200,000 lives are saved. But I never want to give him the credit no. and say he saved no. lives. Verber and Vetsa saved under lives. Under duress, under pressure. Under pressure, self serving, yeah. saving his own skin. He finally stops conniving. Let's put it that way. Yes. He stops conniving in the, in the slaughter of, Euro- of Hungary's Jews. When you look across European borders and you see Poland's reaction to the Holocaust, an almost denial. Uh, where you can be uh, punished uh, for claiming the Polish uh, had an involvement in the Holocaust and that it was something that came from somewhere else, which has caused a freezing of the relationship with Israel. You know, what advice would you give from a Hungarian perspective to uh, words like, for example, the Polish Holocaust, which I could not use, but uh, I can say it from the freedom of London, but it would be difficult to say in Warsaw. Well, I have to cautious here because, as I told you, we try to avoid to interfere in domestic affairs of any other countries. And you also have to keep in mind that, 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 that Poland and Hungary are very close to each other, but there's a substantial difference. The role our nations played in the Second World War. And, and of course, Poles have a completely different perspective as the first country that, that was attacked by the, by the Reich uh, and by the Nazi Germany. And of course, their, their entire understanding of their role in the war is different. And what I, I can understand is the difficulty of the most symbolic death camps location for us, the most symbolic ones, like Auschwitz, in the first place, where most of the Hungarian victims died, actually, uh, was on, on Polish soil. And whenever we talk about the Holocaust, we talk about events that happened on Polish soil. This, this has to somehow frame the thinking uh, of the Polish people when it comes to, to be confronted with, with this history. It's, it's very difficult for them. I can perfectly understand that. Well, what, what we try to do, I, I guess it's a difficult exercise for all of us because Poles, Hungarians, and the Czechs, and the Slovaks, uh, we were all in the same communist camp. We didn't have the freedom and we didn't have the, the opportunity to, to somehow discuss our role, our involvement in the Holocaust. We suffer from this as well, we Hungarians, because there's still a debate around how to what extent the Hungarian authorities uh, contributed to the, to the actual uh, execution of the Hungarian Holocaust. But, you know, the Germans, who played the, the key role in the entire Holocaust, of course, no question about that. But they had the luxury, if I may say that, they had the luxury to freely talk about their involvement throughout all those decades 
when we, we, we didn't have the chance to freely talk about anything. We could only, you know, our public discourse was limited by the oppressive forces. And for some strange reason, and it's a long, long story why, but communists were not interested in discussing the Holocaust and the involvement of either the Poles, the Hungarians, the Czechs, either of these nations. So we could start this discourse. We could start in the 90s. Whereas the Germans could start it early in the 60s. You, yeah. you, you've seen those reactions. So there's, there's still uh, a big chunk of difficulty to be confronted with these stories for, for all of us. And you know these regulations that you refer to are the outcomes of this difficult uh, understanding of our, of our own history. Of course, Poland was allowed... I'm, I'm not going to talk too much about Poland because it's not your remit, but um, Poland was allowed into the European Union despite these uh, conditions not being met. Given your relationship with Poland as a fellow European Union partner, is there anything that you can affect in your experiences? You're, you're talking about sort of, you know, they also had issues with communism and free speech. Um, you have taken this narrative out uh, post-communist and talked over the last decade about the Holocaust and Hungary's involvement. Why has, you know, why has Poland taken this route and as a partner facile of me to say you have the same history but you have a similar post-war history in terms of communism what can you tell them from the Hungarian experience to affect uh, their relationship with with their involvement in the Holocaust? Look uh, there's a a very handy uh, construction if you like to to synchronize our positions and that is the Visegrad 4 uh, the group of, of four countries in Central Europe, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary. And, and this is what we call the V4. And V4 typically operates in a V4 plus format. So uh, it means that, that these four countries team up with another country, V4 plus Germany, V4 plus, plus France, plus Turkey. And there's a V4 plus Israel format as well. Quite often, you know, gatherings are, are, are taking place under this, this umbrella. And this is what we can facilitate. And, and I guess to, to have Poland, which is by far the biggest country in the V4 group, to have them in this, in this group uh, and to go together with our, with our other Visegrad partners, so with, with Slovakia, with Czech Republic, uh, this can be really helpful because it's not only us, not only Hungary tries to, I don't know, push Poland to any direction, but the four of us wants to occupy a synchronized uh, position and uh, I hope the, the V4 plus Israel uh, format will return. Uh, there was a, a case in the, in the recent past when we couldn't uh, sit down together, and that was eventually ended up in a V3 plus Israel, so not having Poland. That was actually a very unfortunate exchange with, with Israel and Poland by the time when we couldn't come together in this V4 plus Israel format. But I see you know, every odds just serve us that that we will come back to the V4 plus plus Israel format. And with that, we can play on these strings of a unified Central European position. Central Europe will always be very important for Israel and for for the global Jewish community as well, because just as your partners all the time you talk to, everyone can trace back the family to either Hungary, to Poland, or or other parts, Lithuania. So our GSI dialogue will will have to be around forever, regardless of political changes. It's, it's, not, it's not a function of who governs, really. Now Hungary is governed by the conservative Christian Democratic Party. We feel a moral drive to, 
to strengthen our ties mm-hmm. to Israel and to the, to, the, to the Jewish community as well. But you know, I, I it's and it, this makes life easier. If you have a moral drive, then yep. it just yep. you, you don't hesitate. But but you know, regardless of of, of political colors, I guess uh, this region will have to go closer to Israel and the Jewish community around the world. I'm going to talk about a very positive uh, trip I made to both Buddha and Pesht, uh, to Dohani Utsa, right. to what I seemed to learn was the very birthplace of Theodore Herzl on the site of the biggest synagogue I've ever seen in my life. And it was, I can't, it, like, it was like a, a football stadium. Uh, it's three stories high. There appears to be not one but two women galleries. It looked like it had a capacity of maybe ten or 12,000. And then I went out to the back um, where there appeared to be a metal, I think chuppah, where uh, a Jewish man and woman marry, and you'd put uh, the prayer shawl, the tallet, over the top of it. It really was an expression of the confidence of the Budapest Jews Indeed. just before the Second World War, and now... And now, obviously, it's empty. It's more of a, more of a museum. There couldn't be. There, there will be there services, are services there. Yeah, there are services. But right, look, what what this is. Uh, if you want the official uh, uh, figures, I guess Dohanyutsa uh, or Dohani, as you say, uh, synagogue is the uh, is the biggest synagogue in Central Europe. There are probably bigger synagogues in France. I haven't seen them. It's absolutely <laughs> I, I, enormous. I, I should know which which. Which are the ones that are bigger, but for sure it's the biggest. Well, it, I tell you what, I've been I've been to a few synagogues <laughs> in a few countries, but this one, it looked like you put, you, it, it could be an airport terminal. It was absolutely enormous. <laughs> yeah, it, it is big. It tells uh, a lot about the strengths of the Jewish community in the, uh, I would say, in the first half of the 20th century. Big families, big Jewish families shaped the, the modernization of Hungary, generally speaking, the industry, the financial world, uh, all these families played a very important role, and they they integrated a lot. So as this was, uh, I would also use the word assimilated mm-hmm. a lot. It's probably not the best thing now to talk about because because assimilation is not something we try to support anywhere with any ethnic or, or religious community. But it's out there. It's but okay. It's, it's out there. And this was Let's the willingness of these good. families it's because they, they, they wanted to because they were, this is, this is also very important for, if you talk about the Hungarian Jewry, they were so patriotic. They fought in our wars. They, they wanted to, to become like the, like the Hungarian upper class in, in many, many cases. And this led to the assimilation of these rich families and, and these very important families. And yes, this very structure, this building just shows how, how strong they were. Today we have services, but there's one thing that you, you, you may have also observed, and that's also important. If you travel around uh, in Western Europe and if you approach a synagogue, what you will see from a distance is a high level of security mm-hmm. around. You, you will see uh, people with machine guns, you will see barbed wire, obstacles and checkpoints and whatever. This is what you didn't see in Budapest for a reason, because uh, there is security, I would say complete security uh, around the Jewish communities. Uh, we don't encounter with, with significant terrorist threat uh, towards these this communities. We, we don't have a track record of physical attacks of any sort, not Muslim radicals, not uh, uh, extreme right groups, none of them. Anti-Semitism is around. It exists. It's a, it's a problem that we try to address by many, many ways. Uh, but the physical security of the members of the community, I would say it's intact. Uh, 
and 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 it's it's more around now in Budapest than I would say anywhere else in in the Western world, which is a strange development. But this is the case now. And if you if you take a look at the the numbers of people who who go to Israel from Hungary who make the Aliyah. There are not big numbers from from Hungary. Why, why do you think this is? Why, why do you think Hungary is a uh, a special case? There, there's an obvious reason for that, for historical reasons, and for the again with the, with the communist decades and and the lack of attraction. We didn't have, we haven't had uh, a big influx of, of of immigration, and as such, uh, big Muslim communities couldn't emerge uh, in Hungary, and therefore radical uh, Islam couldn't find any place. It's just not not existing in Hungary. We don't have them, uh, uh, and of course that's an important driving force. But also the extreme right. You know that's 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 more a problem. Of course, we we, we had and we still have a, a, a par- in the parliament uh, an opposition party that is considered or was considered. It's now hard to characterize because they are changing their uh, their characteristics. This but is Jobbik. That is Jobbik, yes, or, or Jobbik, uh, how, however you want to pronounce. Uh, so they they I pronounced it wrong. Uh, yeah, but but this right, is yeah. I, I I hear this pronunciation all the time. <laughs> what, is, so what is the pronunciation? Jobbik. It's not Jobbik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah at, no. the, at the beginning, I'll, do it, I'll get it wrong. Right. So it's it's now, now difficult to talk about. Perhaps not, they don't deserve to be pronounced right. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, um, as a public servant, I, I, I shouldn't judge a party that is in the parliament. I get it. I understand. Even though it's in, in opposition and even though it, it, it caused a lot of headache for, for us, but let's put it this way, uh, because uh, we've, we've, we've received a lot of international condemnation based on their statements and based on their, their, their previous racist uh, track record. Even even this party decided to change courses, and and so so now we can tell that institutionalized uh, anti-Semitism is not represented in the parliament. It's a very important development, I would say, and there's it's still we don't see any demand for this. We always say that extremism, all sorts of extremism, even if we see the Nazi extremism of the at the end of the war. Uh, or the communist extremism could only find support in Hungary with outside military support. Oh, well, uh, the Arrow Cross Party needed the German occupation. The communists needed the, the, the Soviet uh, troops to be around to, to get into power. So Hungarians, if Hungarians are left alone, if they are free to choose, they would never go to extreme directions. Hungarian voters, luckily, tend to go to the center, tend to, tend to vote moderately. Well, because this is the thing about Hungary, it is a completely unique culture. The language, the people, the history. You know, people are saying when you go and have a look at a Hungarian word, you think, oh, no, this is like Hindi. <laughs> this is what, you know, I, and um, I just, this, this idea that the names of the people, the surname first, the, the Christian name second, just everything about the country is really qu- what a tribe you lot are. Very interesting tribe. <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, you know, it has, has a lot to do, to do with our Asian origin. Right. Right. Hungary and the Hungarian people are uh, in that particular spot where we are in the Carpathian Basin for the last uh, 1,100 years. But this is, uh, if, you, if you want this being different from the neighboring people, it's against something that makes us easier to understand what is going on in Israel and how, how you live your life or how the Israeli people live, live their life and what are the struggles 
of, yeah. of, of being different sure. and being surrounded by different cultures and, and different uh, languages. So, and what we share with Israel, I guess, uh, is, our, is our passion, sometimes overly passion in history. <laughs> this is something, when I served in the US as diplomat, I had a hard time to explain it to, to the Americans because they, they wouldn't really like to look back. Okay, probably these days they do so, but we, we trace back decisions that are made today of events that happened 500 years ago. And this is us. Our passion about the territory, it's, it's a very difficult thing for Hungarians. We've just uh, had the, the 100th anniversary of Trianon, which was the peace treaty after the First World War. Actually affected a, a lot of uh, big Orthodox Jewish communities as well, because they found themselves uh, suddenly in Romania or in Ukraine. Big ones, very important, were the Satmar and the Munkac. Yes. And of course, that was a big tragedy for Hungary, but you know, it, it gives us a, 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 an idea of what it's like to have ethnic Hungarians outside the borders. This is again the, the experience of, of Israel, if you like, to, to have uh, many of the Jewish people not within the, the, the borders of the country. So uh, there, are, there are many, many reasons, and all are rooted in history, uh, and all are, all are rooted in a concept of a nation, how we, how we approach the concept of a nation. Uh, lots of similarities there. And it's very, very easy for us to talk to each other. Very, very yeah. easy to, to be on the same platform immediately. And this, I, I, I do believe that this, 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 will, this will pave the way for even, even more, more development in our relations. Of course, you know, we have to deal with this very difficult history. Hungarian Jewish families, if you talk to anyone, there must be a relative who, who perished in Auschwitz. And if, if it happens so, they have the story how the neighboring non-Jewish Hungarians didn't help them, didn't help them to, to, by, by hiding them, or they were just bystanders and, and passive supporters of the deeds. This is a very difficult, difficult heritage. We, we, we keep it with us. Luckily, and again, I would say it's my generation, the second generation after the war. We, we, we try to, to be confronted with this heritage by art, by filmmaking, for instance. Wonderful films were made. Younger people than myself made these films. One, one got an Oscar Prize, The Son of Saul. Oh, yeah. Son of Saul. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's not an easy watch, of course, no. uh, but something where we, we really try to dig, dig deep into, into what, 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 what was going on, what was going on in the, in the gas chambers, and, 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 and to really understand how we've lost 600,000 of our compatriots. Mm -hmm. And another wonderful movie, uh, the title is, uh, is a, a Year, 1945, that's the title of it. It's just a story of, a, of a, a Jewish father and a son returning to their village after the Holocaust is over, the war is over. And all the, 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 the neighbors and the fellow villagers are, are, are trying to guess what they want to do, whether they want to get back their properties because of what happened, of course. The property of the, of the, of the wealthy Jewish families were, were just distributed among, among the, the, the remaining villagers. And everyone is scared, okay, what, what is going on? And, 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 you know, this conflict is with us, or, or, or was with us at least. And of course, there's a super bitter feeling that is carried over generation by generation among the Jewish people as well, that they lost property, they, they, they lost the entire way of life that they had uh, in certain places. They, they had to start it all over in Brooklyn, they had to start it all over in, 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 in different places. Yeah, yeah. They are now uh, flourishing communities. I'm, I'm so happy to see the Sotmar community, for instance. The average number of kids there is eight, the average. And it, it really happens. I served in New York, that's why I'm so close to, to these people. 
And so we had a, a very direct relationship, gathered a lot of friends in this, in this very strange community. First, I, I had difficulties to approach them, of course. There are, there are a lot of misunderstandings around these people, of course. But they, they are indeed special because they are very conservative, of course. But for us, this is now the right time to somehow reestablish uh, connections to these people because what they definitely are, they are very, very proud Hungarians. They are very proud Hungarians. They sing a Hungarian song all the time, even if they don't speak Hungarian anymore because they speak Yiddish. But there's one song very important for them. They know it by heart. Every kid knows it by heart. Sola Kakasmar, that's the title. And, and they sing it all the time when there's a celebra- celebration. Or, or what. So this just gives you an idea about about their their longing yeah. to, to, to Hungary. There are many themes of our discussions today which I have covered in my 40 episodes, including one with a Satmar woman who ran away from her community to live in Berlin, and it was made into a Netflix movie. Unorthodox. Unorthodox. Her name's Deborah Feldman, and uh, she talked in um, fairly neutral... Yeah, it's uh, it's easily my biggest podcast. The life she left and the multicultural life, literally multicultural life that she has in Berlin, but doesn't particularly make a judgment about what's better or worse, but that she chose to live a Western German life. And so, uh, the Satmarin, it's great to hear you talk about them in, with, with such detail in uh, Williamsburg and in Brooklyn. And it's, it's on that uh, note that we talk about your New York uh, background, because that's where you came from to come here. And uh, you weren't ambassador there, you were, you were a diplomat there. Consul general. You were, you, you were consul general. Yes. Now, again, that was a very interesting place to come from to emerge here as, as the ambassador representing your country in London. Uh, absolutely, of course. I, I was instructed by friends here in, in London not to make too much references towards my or to my U.S. experiences because it's, it's not something that, uh, that the British people are, are, are really happy to, to hear, especially the comparisons. Uh, uh, they are not, not happy with them. I can, I can perfectly yeah, well, You're in that. good company here. It's okay. <laughs> Look, I, I guess you know, New York is a very, very unique city. I, I, I learned a lot. Uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, you know, the problem with Hungarians is just one word back towards uh, to the to, to, to the way we approach the Jewish community. The problem with Hungarians is that we believe. Uh, I guess I can be critical with ourselves. We believe that the Jewish community is a homogeneous community because this is our own experience. Heterogeneity disappeared with the with the Holocaust, with the loss of uh, of the of mm. the of the Orthodox communities, and so we we have to learn it from experience. How big differences there are, and and uh, and, and how an orthodox uh, or an ultra orthodox or Hasid approaches Israel, a, a, a completely yeah. different yes. way. You have to be very careful there. Uh, and 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 I, I learned a lot about Chabad, for instance. Chabad plays an important role now in Hungary. They are an emerging 
community. They try to to regain uh, something from the from the glory of the old Orthodox uh, reality in Hungary. Chabad is, is headquartered in New York as well. I, I had a chance to learn a lot about about their activities as well. So uh, New York in this sense, but of, but we don't have to just talk about the the religious uh, groups. So most of the of the big organizations like World Jewish Congress, like AJC, uh, like like uh, Anti Defamation League. They were all very close partners because they cared a lot about Hungary and they cared a lot about what was going on in Hungary. Uh, sometimes it was difficult for me to explain, but but what what was great that we could keep a good sense of dialogue all the time. I can tell you that throughout my four years, I could experience an absolutely obvious positive trend uh, in the way we can understand each other. The way, for example, ADL, Anti-Defamation League, reflected to, to the way we, we addressed anti-Semitism in Hungary. They, addressed, they, they reflected it in a, in a very positive sense. They, they even uh, came up with statements, supportive statements, which, is, which was very new for us because what we got used to, unfortunately, are the, are the critical statements. Finally, Ambassador, can I ask you a personal and uh, national question? What are your ambitions for yourself? What is the trajectory of someone who uh, was a consul general in New York, an ambassador in London? And what are your hopes and dreams for your country as well? And are they the same thing? <laughs> well, it, uh, <laughs> yes, I hope so as well. Look, I, as, as I've just started this job, uh, all my hopes and ambitions are focused on this particular job, which is uh, the biggest privilege I could imagine for myself in my professional life. To be here, alone the fact that you are the ambassador of Hungary in this wonderful city to the court of St. James, that, that would be a privilege itself. But to be in this very historic period in this city and to, to fulfill these uh, obligations in the period of the Brexit to be completed and to see a new form of bilateral relations uh, between our countries, because we are not fellow uh, member states of the Union uh, of the European Union anymore, or at least this will be for sure the case by the end of this year. So we will have to rethink a lot uh, about our bilateral relations. But the good news is that the foundation of this rethinking is great. I would say even at personal level, the, the connections uh, are in great shape between, between our leaders, prime ministers, because what, what we would like to see, uh, a, a new era of friendship, uh, a new century of friendship, I would say. And, and, you know, based on lots of lots of Hungarians who are here, based on the lots of investments, uh, British investments uh, uh, or on Hungarian soil, I guess, you know, we have no other choice but to have uh, a, a great period ahead of us. But still, you know, you have to work on that. And that is, that is my job. Ambassador, you've talked with uh, great generosity and great uh, personal uh, recollections. I really appreciate uh, the time you've given today. Thank you on behalf of uh, all the audience of Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you so much. I want to thank both His Excellency Ambassador Kumin and Aniko Shebik for welcoming me to the embassy. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at jewishstate.co.uk or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee at coffee.com slash Johnny Gould. That's ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould.